right in the beginning of the 90s, I remember it all changed. And models like Naomi and Linda and Michelle Hicks and Helena, they, they, they were all going to the flea market and buying vintage tops and wearing them with jeans and getting clogs. And there was one model making chokers. And I thought, it's changing. Like these, these were women that had head to toe Versace or Chanel on every time I saw them. And then now everything's changing. Maybe there's a chance for me. You really have to, again, be in the right place at the right time, especially with fashion. You have to have the right offering for what people are feeling. And I feel that that was kind of my moment. I am Susie Menkes, and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. Anna Sui is famous for her colourful clothes and upbeat style. Working from New York, she's done three decades of fashion that looks as fresh now as when she started on the city's downtown scene. But there's more to this designer than meets the eye. Anna Sui has succeeded top to toe, from her makeup in vivid colours and pretty presentations through colourful clothing and lively accessories. As her boutique proved early on in her career, this was a designer who embraced a cheerful style. With a fashion team that she's grown like a family and with an instinct for catching the youth mood of the moment, your travelling museum show from local to London is rightly called The World of Anna Sui. Let's hear from the designer herself just before her show airs digitally for New York Fashion Week on Tuesday, the 15th of February. Anna Sui, it's such a joy to see you and I can't wait to get back to New York and see your next show that I know you're busy doing at the moment. Does it feel good to be back or did you never really leave it behind? Hi Susie, it's so good to see you too. Um... Yeah, it's great, but it's different right now. It's still, there's so many obstacles as far as being able to accomplish what we need to. I'm still very skeptical about gatherings, um, but we're, we're doing what we need to. And I think we're learning new ways to express ourselves. When we think about it, you are such a great American success story. From your distinctive, colourful fashion, for your shops as much as your shows, you've expanded with a great deal of um, beauty and fragrance. I think we could call you an American dream. Thank you. I think that um, the like the stars all fell into place for me, like as far as uh, my career, you know, it took a while to really take off because, you know, I had started my business in 81 and I didn't do my first show until 91. So uh, it took me those 10 years to kind of be in the right place at the right time. And you said that your, your mom is still in Mich- Michigan. Is that right? Yes, that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's your roots, isn't it? That's where you came from. How it do you is. feel about your personal history and what it has brought to fashion over three decades? Have you brought a little bit of Michigan with you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I was a child of pop culture, grew up in the suburbs, you know, watched all the TV sitcoms, um, grew up, 
you know, watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, the Stones. And then also in Michigan, we had rock bands like Iggy Pop and the Psychedelic Stooges, MC5. So I wasn't really old enough to go to the venues then, but my brother would take me to the outdoor concerts so I could see them. And so, you know, all that like rock and roll uh, um, that was everywhere in, in Detroit really, really kind of sank into my psyche. And it's been kind of the root of everything that I've done. And this is when you were a teenager, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very strange because I only can think of you as when you got to Parsons to the um, fashion school. <laughs> and so then I felt that fashion was your um, subject from an early age. But um, you're saying that when you were in Detroit or maybe when you were at Parsons, you started your own label already, didn't you? No, I went to Parsons for two years. At the end of the second year of school, I overheard two seniors talking about this designer that I really, really liked. Um, Her name was Erica Elias, and she did a line called Charlie's Girls. And I remember uh, reading about her, not only like in Seventeen magazine, but just in, in so many publications. So I thought, well, oh, I'd love to work there. So I ran up there with my school portfolio, and I got the job. So I never went back to school. I just started working, which was probably the best thing that ever happened because she was a very, very demanding boss. Um, I learned so much from her. And it was such a thorough education because she kind of gave me my own design room and uh, two sewers and a, a pattern maker. And, she, and there were four divisions so I could design for any of the divisions. And she said, just be creative, you know, come up with ideas. And that's what I did and learned the fabric market, the trim market, and also how to work with sewers and pattern makers. So you're you're telling me that the Anna Sui look really started even before you had your um, business. Um, And it was in 1980. Well, after I worked for um, this first company, I worked at two other places and then I had um, some friends that were making punk rock jewelry. And I thought they were just the coolest people on earth because they were not only selling boutiques in New York, but also in London. So I thought, well, I want to do something like that. So they said, well, why don't you make some clothes and we can share a booth at the New York boutique show. So I made a small collection of five pieces and I ended up selling. At that time, Macy's and Bloomingdale's both had what they called swing shops and they were featuring like all young designers. Um, From that, I ended up getting the Christmas windows at Macy's and also a New York Times ad. All along, I was working at a big company because I had no, no, no other means of income. And I got called into the owner's office and he said, why do you have your own New York Times ad when you're on my payroll? This has to stop. And I said, well, it can't stop. I have to ship my orders. So I ended up getting fired. And that's how I started my business. Best thing that's ever so- happened to you, I should think. <laughs> Now tell me, um, Anna, how would you describe the Anna Sui look? Is it about layers for accessories? Is it about the um, significance of the prints? Is it about staying young and keeping a freshness about your work? I think it's all of those things. I think that, you know, it's really a total look. And even when I was at Parsons, I was not really interested in couture. I really love Pret-a-Porter and designers like Kenzo and Dorothea Beast. And I wanted um, street fashion mixed in with regular fashion. And I think that, you know, when people talk about my fashion now, not only is it always a total look with lots of accessories and prints, but it's always very feminine, very, very nostalgic and romantic with a touch of rock and roll. 
I think those are all the phrases that people always use when they write about my fashion. Um, I also think that whatever the subject is, and there have been many of them, there's always an enormous amount of research that you put into the inspirational background for each collection. And you've got the um, Autumn Winter 2022 show coming up in, isn't it, in 10 days' time? Um, yes. Tell me a bit about the theme and the story that you're telling us for this season. Well, that's my favourite thing, learning more about things I'm interested in or just discovering. And um, I saw this great documentary about Ready, Steady, Go, the TV show, which you're probably very familiar with. You probably grew up with it. Yes. And I just loved how quirky the TV show was, how kind of like they had all the bands before they became famous, how they had like a figurehead like Kathy McGowan that wore like very cool clothes by new up-and-coming designers. Like I love that whole concept. So that was part of the inspiration for what I'm doing. But I had also started researching like Art Deco mixed with 60s mod mixed with 80s new wave. And on my board, I have um, artists like, um, I, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, Derek Bouchier. Sounds the, good. Like he designed, yeah, he designed the um, David Bowie album covers and Barney Bubbles, who did like a lot of the um, punk and new wave bands. Like I have pictures of those um, record covers also up on the wall. So I just like this whole combination of things because to me, those were just so, such um, important like breakthroughs for like Youthquake through the years and that's what my collection is all about like a combination of all those things oh, but I have to ask you something because all of us expect designers to carry on um, obviously with a great deal of newness but also carry on with their um, what they have been doing over some years or many years but the real question we are asking is what about Covid post-Covid let's hope it's right behind us in a digital world also what is the situation how much do you feel of the anniversary of the past is going to come again and really find a way to the future? Well, I think that what COVID has done is kind of slowed things down and kind of given us a chance to really reevaluate. And I noticed so many designers are now kind of not just doing everything is completely brand new every season. Everything's become kind of um, a signature. So you see styles repeating, but like in new ways. Um, where in the past it was always something new, always something new. And I think people are liking that. They're liking to see the evolution of a product that they love instead of it like completely disappearing. And then the other thing that's been happening is like all like the Gen Z people are really interested in the 90s, in Y2K. And so many requests um, have been made for like me to reissue things that I made in the past um, we did, uh, starting with my exhibition in uh, London and then in New York, I reissued some of the 90s styles for opening ceremony. And then a few years later, Mark Jacobs decided to do his grunge collection again, and he invited me to reissue some of my grunge pieces. And just, I, I think that, you know, especially Gen Z is just so interested in all that. And now the store out in L.A., Mark's store out in L.A., has that heaven line. And they did a pop-up shop for me this August where, again, we curated some 90s styles from, I was buying them off online, and then we recreated a few things, and then we also made a little display of a lot of the 90s fashion that we did. And now so many requests have been made for 
us to reissue those pieces. Well, one of your great skills is making the past seem present or even future. But there's one thing that wasn't around, as far as I know, in the 90s, and that was this focus on a sustainable route in fashion. But you seem to be very involved in that. Didn't you recently team up with the um, rental and resale um, platform? I mean, it's called, what's it called, Newly? Newly. And um, it was to produce a line of nine dresses made from your upcycled Anna Sui fabrics. Meaning, if I understand it, it sounds so grand, but you mean that you had lots of stock of pieces that haven't been used and you thought, I want to use these from the back of the store cupboard and make them into something. Is that right? Yes. I think that, you know, so many people are trying to think of ways so that there's less waste. And that was always the thing with collections, especially when everything had to be new every season. We always had a lot of leftover fabric. But this time, um, I did it several times for several different people, taking some of our old stock and uh, fabrics and redesigning them and reconfiguring them and patchworking them and making them into new creations. And I think people love that. Some people remembered the prints or it just became a whole new concept for people when they saw it. back again to what you were talking about, about the 1990s. I feel I made you slightly skate over that, but it is very interesting. And and you even have a a shop on Depop, don't you, the resale marketplace. So Mm -hmm. why do people love the 90s so much? Was it really such a thrilling time? Um, I think that for, for me personally, yes, it was a very thrilling time. I think that there was just so much excitement because Having started my business in the 80s, it was difficult because the top designers at that point were really those very powerful designers like Versace and Chanel. And then in it, right in the beginning of the 90s, I remember one summer it all changed and models like Naomi and Linda and Michelle Hicks and Helena, they, they, they were all going to the flea market and buying vintage tops and wearing them with jeans and getting clogs. And there was one model making chokers. And I thought, it's changing. Like these these were women that had head-to-toe Versace or Chanel on every time I saw them. And then now everything's changing. Maybe there's a chance for me. So I think it was just such a personal time because you really have to, again, be in the right place at the right time, especially with fashion. You have to have the right offering for what's, what people are feeling. And I feel that that was kind of my moment. Uh, well, I remember going to the World of Anna Sui exhibition at the um, Museum of Arts and Design um, was in when I was last in New York. So that was yes. 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were just talking about that just um, now. What did it mean to you to have the um, textile museum in uh, London and then in New York? And then you've gone on, haven't you? You are yes. in North Carolina, I think, at the moment. Is that right? Yes. I mean, it was such a thrill because you know how much I love English fashion, especially the 60s and 70s designers. So my favorite museum was always the Fashion and Textile Museum. And from going there so often, I got to meet Zandra Rhodes, who was always one of my idols. And she was very instrumental in having my exhibition there. Um, I happened to go for a Thea Porter exhibition and the um, museum director and Dennis Northrup saw me Um, there and they said oh let's have coffee and by the end of having coffee they said do you want to have an exhibition here 
And I was just so thrilled because who, whoever would have thought that I could show in London. So um, after that, the Museum of Arts and Design in New York took the exhibition and it was a huge success there. And then after that, it traveled to Tokyo, to Shanghai, and then to Fort Lauderdale. Unfortunately, I was never able to go to the Shanghai one or the Fort Lauderdale one because of COVID. I did go to the North Carolina opening, and that was such a thrill because, again, like the Mint Museum always has had such wonderful exhibitions, and now they're really focusing on doing fashion, and for them to select me was quite an honor. So it's just being able to see everything all together, which was really, really exceptional because we're so busy creating a new collection, working on production on the previous collection that we never look back at the old collection. And through all those years, a lot of those pieces I had never even looked at. And you remember my assistant, Thomas, mm -hmm. he went to London to set up the exhibition and he called me crying and he said, Anna, you can't believe how this looks. You're going to be so moved. And it's really true. We never reflected back. We just kept moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. And it's really true. It was such an emotional experience each time when I see everything all together. Well, I, I remember it as being tremendously powerful and interesting and alive. Thank you. And one of the things that interests me is that I'd like to talk to you about this, about your fashion family, because a lot of the people who work for you now have been working for you since the 1980s, that they have gone along with you, that they're sort of part of it all. And um, I, I found a quote that you made. Um, someone said that being backstage at my shows was like being backstage at a gig. I guess I'm a rock chick at heart. <laughs> was it all a big party when you were with all these people working for you? Was it all fun and games or behind it was there a lot of hard work? Well, of course, there was a lot of hard work behind it. But backstage was very magical because... It was so genuine. It wasn't people being paid to come to wear the clothes. It was just models with their boyfriends uh, or bringing a friend or an artist was in town and he wanted to see what this was all about. Um, I happened to meet somebody at a dinner or a party and said, oh, you should come to my fashion show. You know, we had people like Jim Jarmusch or Iggy Pop or different actors like Matt Dillon, Jared Leto, like so many actors and were like boyfriends of the models at that time. And they were just coming to like, look at the girls. And so it was it was quite a quite a good time backstage. And sometimes we had to calm it down because we needed to concentrate on getting the girls dressed and out onto the runway. But it was it was a very fun time. I think a bit of fun is always a good idea. Did it also run into the studio? Was it all very fun and did you work with people in a way that they felt like family more than people you work with? Totally. Um, even from before I did the show, I went to Paris with my friend Stephen Mizell, and he brought me along. We stopped for the, before the first show. We picked up Madonna on the way, and I didn't really know Madonna. She came out of her dressing room with a coat on, and when we sat down at the Gaultier show, she took off her coat, leaned over, and said, Anna, I have a surprise for you, and she was wearing my dress. In her hotel room... I was so impressed because on every rack and every surface, there were boxes and bags and things hanging from every designer in Paris. So I thought, oh, I can't wait to see what Madonna's wearing. And then she came out wearing my dress. So that was one of the things that gave me confidence when Stephen said, okay, when we got back to New York, he said, now it's time for you to do a show. 
and he said, I'll help you. And I knew Linda and Naomi and Christy socially because they were friends with Stephen and we would have dinners together, birthday parties, but I didn't really work with them except for when, if I was styling a job, which I did occasionally with Stephen. And they all helped me get all the other models. For hair, Garen came, came aboard to do the hair. Francois Nars did the makeup. Also creating all the accessories, Erickson Beeman did the jewelry. James Coviello did the hats. I had a few licenses, including some shoe licenses or bag licenses. So through the years, they did those. So pretty much I worked with the same team all the time. And you also, um, you didn't use all the time the same music, but you had a very much a focus on music, didn't you? You still do. It's not in the past. I, yes. I found another good quote. It, you, this is you saying, music made the fashion more amazing and more accessible. Um, explain to me what you mean exactly. I mean, you were talking earlier about the grunge music scene. And how mm. did that make the clothes, the fashion more amazing and more interesting? Well, I think that my job is to transport the audience and transport them to my fantasy or what's reflective of what's on my inspiration board. And part of what helps transport is the music. So usually there's a mixture of old and new, current, um, even some like avant-garde music. Um, I worked so many years with um, uh, Frederick Sanchez, who has such an encyclopedic knowledge of music that he brought a lot to, to that also. I learned so much about French culture from him, about like the 60s new wave uh, directors. Like just every time when I, when I would focus on something, he would bring like another element to it. So it was, again, always like a learning experience as I was researching, as I was trying to inspire not only myself, but also everyone that I work with. Um, so it, it's, it's always been such a fun time when we're creating the collection. But you speak, uh, you're telling me about all these famous people, but you know, you're a pretty famous person yourself. And um, I get the feeling that from very early on, from the, the, the beginning of those three decades, you wanted to focus on what you did and who you were. You weren't just going to be somebody who made the clothes. Um, wasn't your brother involved as well and friends? And they all didn't they all help you decorate that amazing store with its sort of <laughs> yes. darkness and then all the colours on top of it? Was it a brilliant decision to open that store? Did it help kind of explain who you were as a young designer? Would you do it well, today? Yeah, well, that was the thing. People did, didn't know where to put me, especially in department stores, because I couldn't really hang next to Calvin Klein. Yet I was a New York designer. So my friend, Zach Carr, who worked for Calvin Klein, lived down the street from me. And we would say hello and chat occasionally. And one day he said, Anna, I have an idea for you. You have to come over for dinner. I went to his house for dinner. And through the course of the dinner, he said, you know, I'm kind of psychic. And I think if you open a store, people would get you. Next day, I went down to Soho. And Soho was not really happening at that point. It had gone through a wave of happening. And then there were a lot of empty spaces. And I found the store on Green Street. And I thought, okay, I think we can afford this. It took a while to, to get the, the lease um, to get accepted into the building. So while we were waiting, I started thinking about how we we're going to decorate. And as a kid, I would save pictures of boutiques and interiors that I loved. So I went to my files, went into the envelope and came up with ideas. And you can see that there's a lot of influence from Biba, Serendipity, places that, that I just loved. And it's all kind of combined together. I never could really afford 
antique furniture. So I would go to the flea market and buy kind of um, French provincial or, or like fake French furniture and paint it black and then make it look Victorian. So that's kind of was my concept for decorating my store. The red floors uh, came from my apartment because I had my business in my apartment for a few years. And when I finally moved it out, I had to get the floors resanded. And Stephen Mizell was over and he heard me talking to the contractor. And I said, oh, yeah, just sand the floors and make them blonde. And he said, wait a minute, get off the phone. And so when I got off the phone, he said, blonde floors for you? No. What kind of floors would Diana Vreeland have? And I said, red. He said, okay, get red floors. Oh, wow. So then I had to research how to get red floors. And there was just this new kind of stain that was from Scandinavia. And so that's what we used to stain the floors red. So I use that same concept in my store. Well, I mean, I love the names. Forget the colors and all these brilliant choices. What about the names you gave them? Surreal, hippie grunge, pink bohemian. They describe your style, apparently. But something you haven't talked about much is your beauty business. Um, I don't think that um, people necessarily want um, punk bohemian for makeup, but why not? And you've had <laughs> tremendous success with your perfume and cosmetics. Um, you launched them in 1993, so that's a long time ago now, isn't it? I mean, my goodness, it's 30 years, mm. nearly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that that's really what's kept me in business all these years, is that it's very hard to make money making clothes. Everything always goes wrong. Everything's always late. You have to find substitute things. You know, it, if the production's late. Something goes wrong anytime when you're making something. But with the cosmetics and fragrance, it gave me a backbone and a financial backbone to continue through all these years. And what happened was when I started showing in New York Fashion Week, all the international press was coming and a lot of international buyers. And there was a lot of interest from Japan for New York designers. And I got approached by a lot of different um, companies, not only manufacturers, but also some retail stores. And I signed with Isaton. And with that uh, distribution deal that I signed with Isaton, I also got 12 different licenses, one of which was the cosmetics. At the same time, I was approached by Wella, which was uh, a fragrance company and German. And they asked me, would I do a fragrance line? So I said to both of them, I'll sign with you if you'll cross-distribute. And not really understanding what I was talking about, but I guess that was the beginning of globalization. And we did it, and it didn't have, um, I mean, it did have a lot of difficulties, but we, it eventually smoothed out and became, you know, the product became global. all the success in the Far East, was this partly through to your parents? I think you said to me that your mother was, um, tell me, your mother and father were My both. mother's Chinese, mm -hmm. um, but my grandfather was educated in Japan and my grandmother's Japanese uh, on her side. Uh, my father was from the south of China and his family started the first kind of department stores in Tahiti. But his father ran the business from China and then eventually Hong Kong. So it, our, our, our heritage is Chinese. And do you think, because after all, you've had a very American life, and in many ways you are, you're the American dream made into reality. 
Um, but do um, you think that that is part of a contribution to your success? Definitely. It definitely. I think, you know, I think that a lot of um, the discipline and determination and also acceptance to um, like react to the moment came from my parents because I think it was really extraordinary that they both were, um, they met actually when they were studying in France. So for both of them to leave their homes and go uh, uh, to a foreign country to be educated. And then my father went to Michigan because he uh, got a scholarship to for a master's degree at the University of Michigan. And then my mom and, and brother joined him like a few months later. So that's why I was brought up in Michigan. So I think that just to see their courage and strength and determination inspired me. So when I was asked to do freelance work because I needed to get extra income, Franca Sozani called me and said, oh, I have a job for you in Italy. Can you get on a plane tomorrow? And I said, okay, and jumped on a plane, not speaking any Italian, and I ended up freelancing there for seven years. Same with working in Japan. Well, you do seem to move around a lot. I mean, aren't you now (laughs) um, doing something in Montreal? Yes. um, So I'm so excited. Um, We've been um, working with Essence, which is a great online store. Um, They have like the coolest brands. And we've done like a capsule collection for them. Again, reflecting on some of the 90s collections. We're calling it kind of the Mud Club collection. It was inspired by the collection that I did, inspired by my days hanging out at the Mud Club. And I think that, again, it's really appealing to a new generation. And you know what I think also, that you have bits of character from all your background and from what you do. And so therefore, I'm going to give you congratulations on the year of the tiger, because I think you're a fashion tiger, somebody who's fought your way to the top. And you seem to enjoy it. You don't seem violent or difficult. You really seem to enjoy what you're doing and relish it. Am I right? Thank thank you. I think I'm really blessed that I was able to live my dream, which is what I always sign when um, I sign for uh, uh, my fragrance or my books. And I think that that focus that I always had since I was four or five years old, I think it it never wavered. And I think that, you know, a lot of sacrifice along the way, a lot of hard work along the way, and really a lot of like making choices that this is what I want. Well, congratulations. And um, (laughs) thank you. I wish you all the best for the Chinese New Year and that you have a great time celebrating the Year of the Tiger. (laughs) Thank you. It's so wonderful to see you. I miss you, and I hope that we'll get together next time we're in the same country. Yes, I can't wait to get back to New York. It'll be so fabulous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, Anna Swee, we've all discovered that you find life fun. However hard you've worked to build your little empire, you make everyone feel cheered, especially in the difficult COVID period. You have made it clear that you believe in what you do, that you want fellow women to feel strong and look colourful, an image that runs through your shows and your designs on sale. Congratulations, Anna Sui, in making us feel that, however hard you've worked for success, the world is a happy place. Join me next time when I shall be talking to cult photographer Dave Bennett, who is opening an exhibition of his work at London's J.D. Mallat Gallery to mark his 40 years in the industry where he has captured the inner rings as some of the most important VIP moment. 
you will have seen his photographs splashed across the front pages of newspapers and magazines. I think the impact of his photos are captured best here in this quote from Kate Moss. I'm always happy to see Dave's face at a party or event. I know I'm in safe hands. He is the best. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels. Thank you.